welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. the Word of God today, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, as we move uh, verse by verse through this wonderful epistle. Paul, speaking of his ministry, says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is God's holy word. May it have its eternal impact on our hearts once again today. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I'm back from a couple weeks off, and I'll warn you that I've noticed something. Whenever I come back and I haven't been on the platform in a couple weeks, I go long. <laughs> and I, I'm just... T- oh, okay. Maybe it's not a warning. Maybe it's an encouragement. I don't know. Uh, working on it all the time, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm telling you that may happen, so I'm going to ask for a little grace today. Also, I'm going to be talking about ministry. We get to a, a portion of Scripture that is filled with how Paul pastored how he taught. And uh, whenever a preacher gets to reading about preaching and, and studying about it, a, a, a level of depth from his own experience enters into his preparation and his proclamation. So there's going to be a lot for me to say here today. So again, we may tip over a little longer today than usual, but I beg your indulgence. Uh, as we move through this wonderful epistle to the Colossians, we come to a section that began in verse 24 of chapter 1, where Paul takes a little time to be transparent because he has to defend his ministry. He, uh, he's being attacked by some false teachers that had come into the church at Colossae, where, to whom he had written this epistle. Paul was uh, in custody at the time. He was uh, in jail and, and not free to travel, but news of the Colossians being affected by these false teachers had come to him. And so he writes this epistle as a, an answer to their teaching, but also as a defense of his ministry because the false teachers apparently had been undermining his reputation as a pastor. He was the ultimate spiritual leader for the churches in that region. His ministry had birthed all of them. And so uh, these false teachers, in an attempt to enhance their own standing with people, were cutting Paul down long distance, and, and basically telling the Colossians that he wasn't a pastor with sufficient knowledge, and what he was teaching them wasn't the full truth. And so Paul takes a, a moment or two here in, in this epistle as he's dictating it, and as it was later written, to defend himself. And sometimes you have to do that in ministry. He gets transparent, and, and in this section, we've seen that it kind of forms a portion of scripture that gives you an insight into a pastor's life. And so I've entitled this little sweep of scripture for the last few weeks, A Pastor's Life. In it, you can see different dimensions of how pastors minister and what they live under and why they do what they do. 
First, we've seen uh, that a pastor is called, and that was verse 25, where he talked about, verses 424 and 25, rather, where he talked about becoming a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him. Pastors are called servants of God. They're unique in their ministry in that respect. You shouldn't pastor without a strong calling from God. You can't pastor without a calling from God. Can I just be blunt? Then we learn, secondly, about a pastor's passion, and that was the verses that sweep from verse 25 down to verse 27, where Paul talked about his passion to see Christ in them, verse 27, the hope of glory. He talked about the fact that Christianity is a unique relationship with God in which Christ comes to dwell within us, and his power allows us to live at a level and grow at a level of spiritual maturity and power in our lives that is otherworldly. It's, it's remarkable. And Paul wanted these Christians to experience the power of God in their lives in and, and ways that they had never done it before. So he had a passion for that. And all pastors have a passion to see their people live out their faith and have Christ's power released in them. Today, we get to the next dimension, which I would call a pastor's purpose. And that's verses 28 and 29. Paul gets into the boots on the ground approach to how pastors work with their people and how they teach from the pulpit. And he talks about a clear grasp on purpose. We know this because he says in verse 29, for this I toil. So everything that that comes in the preceding section of verses is kind of culminated by Paul saying, this is what I'm in this for. For this I toil. This is my purpose, particularly verses 28 and 29. They kind of tighten the purpose uh, aperture for Paul. And so purpose is critical, especially for pastors. Having a grip on your purpose is very important in this line of work because in this job, everybody is happy to give you their purpose. <laughs> you may not experience this, but when you're, fi- when you're the final word about ministry and church and all things spiritual, lots of people are happy to give you their purpose and make their purpose your big priority. And, and it can get pretty demanding and pretty confusing. And uh, if you uh, are responsive to everybody's purpose... You soon become kind of a wandering generality. Nobody knows what you're about, and you become torn from different places, and you burn out in ministry. This has been a problem since Paul wrote about it in Colossians 1.28, and it's been a problem through all the generations of ministry for pastors. Uh, a great pastor of the past, G. Campbell Morgan, marvelous uh, Bible teacher in England, a man who finished very well in ministry, got there because he had a focus like a laser purpose on being an expositor, somebody who opened God's word, and that was his primary passion. He wrote this in 1925 to pastors. He said, nothing is more needed among preachers today than that we should have the courage to shake ourselves free from the thousand and one trivialities in which we are asked to waste our time and strength and resolutely return to the original ideal which the apostles made clear that the work of a pastor is all about in Acts chapter 6 verse 4. We must resolve that we pastors will continue steadfastly in prayer and in the ministry of the word. Now uh, Dr. Morgan wrote that 
And I totally agree with it because it's biblical. When, when the apostles had to focus their ministry because needs were going out of control in the early church and all kinds of people were coming to them in Acts chapter 6 saying there's this problem and there's that problem. This group is unhappy or that needs being met, not being met. They said, we're going to have to mobilize the body of Christ to engage in that. But as for us, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And that's the everlasting focus of elders and pastors. So he got it right. Now, G. Campbell Morgan wrote that in 1925. Um, That was not only before cell phones, it was almost before telephones. And I can imagine... uh, Uh, that it it applies even more today. When he said there's a thousand and one trivialities that are pulling at your time and strength today, you'd just call it a million and one for the average spiritual leader because all pathways are open now to influence you all the time. There's no gates on on the entry into your life anymore. And uh, I can imagine the the apostle Paul experienced something similar. Paul was the, the pastor to the Gentiles. He was the one that opened up church planting in the entire non-Jewish world. Every church that's ever been planted since that wasn't in the soil of Israel or among Jews has been planted because Paul started that movement. And while he was alive, he was the ultimate leader, if you will, of all the churches that were being planted by the dozens every day as Christianity expanded. He was the man that had started it all, and he was the man that that got the the issues of it all coming his way. Can you imagine if Paul had voicemail? (laughs) What a nightmare it would be to hit your voicemail button and to have to know what's on the other end of that. Does any of you have phone terror? Any of you? If you're a manager right now in industry, you have double phone terror because all the issues are even worse. But, you know, so gosh, I mean, if he had had texting, Paul would have burned out in six months, no doubt. The demands of ministry are so great. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, I've suffered so much over the years of my ministry. And in addition to all my physical suffering and imprisonments and beatings, and and hardships upon me daily is the concern. Some versions translate that anxiety for all the churches. Spiritual leadership is an unending experience of difficulties and pressures and problems and things that need to be dealt with. And so pastors are overwhelmed with that and they need to have purpose or else they will be diluted and then just kind of worn down. So Paul writes here about his purpose, and he says, no matter what those false teachers say about me, I'm going to tell you what a faithful pastor focuses on, and this is what I have focused on. This is what I'm going to continue to focus on. He talks about the five purposes of a pastor in this passage. Now, you might be sitting and listening to me and saying, well, (laughs) in your own mind saying, well, I'm not a pastor. So I guess the next 40 minutes are probably not going to apply to me. Well, wait a minute. You know at least one pastor, don't you? Some of you have a blank look. Hello? (laughs) For the next 40 minutes, you know at least one. So you know a pastor. You know many pastors. So now you're going to learn how to pray for them, and you're also going to learn how to encourage them to be about the right purposes that they need in their ministry. So this is applicable to you. 
what to look for in a pastor's life, and what to pray for in a pastor's life. So let's get to the five. Now, these five purposes that I've discerned in these two verses all differ, but they're all centered around the preaching of the word. It's interesting. Everything that Paul talks about in these two uh, verses is built around proclaiming the word. And that's because when Timothy was being pulled by all kinds of people in his church about where he should be going or what he should be doing, Paul said, listen, you, as for you, preach the word, didn't he? Second Timothy 4.2. So everything a pastor does orbits around the, the, the solar sun of preaching the word of God. I want you to remember that. So there are five purposes. Here's the first one. He leads with it in verse 28. Him we proclaim. The first purpose of a pastor is to preach Christ. To preach Christ. Now, now you might, if you've been around church a long time, be sit, being sitting there saying, well, Captain Obvious, I think we knew that. But oh, you're missing it. In fact, a lot of people are missing it in ministry today. Paul had to remind these Colossians that true pastors preach Christ. The the notion of who we preach and how we preach leads the list. Notice, preaching Christ leads the list of the five purposes that you'll see in this passage. That's so critical. It's first on the list. If you preach and you preach Christ, you don't preach anything else. You don't let anything else invade your message. You don't get distracted with any other kinds of things that Christians want to talk about that are not Christ. You you have to start there and, and build your ministry from that. That's why it's first in the list. Him we preach. In the Greek, it's emphatic. Him is, is first in the sentence, like in the English here. Christ, who he, he's talking about preaching who Jesus is, why Jesus came, what Jesus did, what his death accomplished, what his teaching on earth reflected in the life of the disciple, what his resurrection means, what his ascended life today means, how he works as Christ in his church today. It's all from beginning to end about Jesus Christ. And if you're a pastor, that's what you have to get right in the beginning. It's first in the list because if you get that right, your ministry is on its way. But if you get that wrong from the beginning, it doesn't matter how successful outwardly your ministry looks in numbers or in programming, or in your profile, or in how many people say they've been affected by what you do. If you didn't start by preaching Christ, you start with the wrong objective. It doesn't matter how outwardly effective you look, you're going in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? You get this right, your ministry is on its way. You get this wrong, nothing you do afterward matters. I don't care how impressive it is to people, even to Christian people. If you're not preaching Christ portraying Christ, focusing on Christ. Nothing you do afterward matters. In fact, you just may be making great progress going in the wrong direction. That's why he leads with it. Now note two things about this. Whom we are to preach, and it is Christ. You say again, that's so obvious, but not really. Spiritual leaders can choose what they tell you up here. 
They can choose what to focus on in their teaching ministry and in their philosophy of ministry. Spiritual leaders can and do choose to preach about a lot of things, and not all of us choose to preach Christ, unfortunately. Now you're saying, wow, you're going to talk about pastors today. Sounds like you might have a little edge and you might be saying some critical things about pastors. Yes, well, I can do that because I are one. And I have been one for 30 years. I've been through the ups and downs. I've been through the off trails and I've gotten back on track. So I want to speak to you about what Paul said. Paul is speaking to pastors here and he's saying, don't get off track, preach Christ. Him we must proclaim. Now, why did he have to say this? Because the false teachers in Colossae were doing exactly the opposite. They were proclaiming a lot of Christian things that didn't have to do with the fullness of Christ. What were they doing? Look in your Bibles, Colossians 2, and look at verse 8. The Bible explains the Bible. The context of the book of Colossians broadly explains what Paul is talking about in this one verse. Colossians 2 eight. he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Who's he talking about? The false teachers. They were developing a Christian philosophy that wasn't based on Jesus Christ. That wasn't based on the fullness of the work he did on the cross. They were taking parts of Christianity, making their own philosophical system about it, and pushing that onto the Colossian church. They were inventing their own Christian teaching, and that is a danger. So Paul said, no, I didn't start there and I'm not going to end there. We don't preach a philosophy, him we proclaim. You get it, you see the connection. They were teaching a philosophy. There are a lot of people that teach Christian sounding philosophies, use Bible verses and Christian precepts that they talk about, but you seldom ever hear in their teaching or preaching the nature of Christ or the work of the cross. How many times have you sat in a Christian meeting with a platform personality? You hear a lot of Christian ideas, Christian philosophies, Christian principles, but you rarely understand or hear about the cross. And you go away saying something was missing. That's the something. Not only philosophy, but but spiritual teachers can also get caught up in teaching systems. And that's Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle this, don't touch that. The, The false teachers developed a religious system. It talked about Christ, but it wasn't fully of Christ. So when that happens... You can be in a situation where people create a spiritual system that feels like Christianity, but if the heart of the cross is not there, that's not true Christianity. And so they were being influenced by that. And that happens today in our world. Lots of spiritual leaders can and do choose to preach about a lot of things and not all choose Christ. It's easy to get caught up if you're a a communicator and a spiritual leader in your own interests. You'll start reading the Bible through your own grid about what you think is really important about what people might need to hear or what you want to focus on. And you can become myopic and focused on parts of Scripture. If you're a person with a heart for people and how people hurt, you can begin to read the Bible and teach the Bible as a perpetual therapy book. That's not what it is. It is a book that exalts the nature and person of Jesus Christ cover to cover. Or if you're really caught up in, in, in events and, and, and the things that are going on in the world, you can become tightly focused through the little, the little microscope of, of, of 
of prophecy and things that you feel in the Bible are prophetic and, and you find a headline behind vir virtually every verse in prophetic sections and that becomes the whole focus of your ministry. Are people being fed the, new, the, the greatness of Christ in that? Probably not. We get caught up in things. Might be, be caught up in the relational pain that people have or fears of what's going on in a society today and become a cultural commentator more than a Christ explainer. You can get off base, and I understand it. It's happened to me. But Paul says we go back to the fundamental call as pastors. Christ is who we proclaim. Now, it was easy to get caught up back in Paul's time, just like in this time, with what people tell you they want to hear. And Paul experienced this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He talked about the nature of preaching. And in verse uh, 22 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. These are the two calls of what people said they wanted to hear and wanted to see. But we preach, can you finish the verse? Christ crucified. We preach the fundamental nature of who Jesus Christ is. Now, that's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Translation, it's not what they're going to want to hear. That's not how they want to see God. But then he says, however, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To the person who's been born again, to the person who has a new nature and a new mind, when you preach Christ, you're hitting the sweet spot of who they now are in Christ. And that's who they want to hear more of. If people are telling you that they don't want to hear more of that, it puts a question mark as to the nature of what's really true about them spiritually. I'll never forget in one of my early churches, after about a year there preaching and going through the Bible verse by verse, one of the leaders of the church came up to me after a morning service with a pretty big head of steam on, and he just said, you keep telling us more and more about Jesus Christ. Get to something more practical. Oh, wow. He's a living illustration of that passage. But you see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fountain of all that you ever need to know. In Colossians, in, your, in the book of the Colossians here, go to chapter 2, verse 3. We'll be finding out in a few weeks that verse 3 is true of Colossians 2. In Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How do you get practical as a preacher? I would say, let's start with what Jesus Christ has done, who he is, what he said, what he wants to do in your life. That's the, the, the fountain of all wisdom and knowledge. I don't know what to do about this in my life. Let's take a look at the Lord Jesus Christ, his example, his teachings. Let's dive into the word of God. Let's understand what the will of Christ is for your life. <laughs> It's just a, it's a distinction that's right there, but oh, it gets lost. So I can already tell I'm not even going to finish this message. That's all right. <laughs> to preach Christ is the first purpose of a pastor. Whom we preach is the first issue under this. And then secondly is how we preach. And that's contained in the language in verse 28. The word proclaim. Uh, there is a 
Tremendous amount of discussion today in pastoral circles about how pastors should communicate. It's always been bubbling around in my generation and the generations after. And there's a lot of conversation going on today about how to package what we preach so that it will be acceptable to the modern listener. I've been in seminars that talk about it. I've had other pastors talk to me about it. Uh, the, the, the prevailing thought is that we don't want to be direct or intense as we preach. We want to be more conversational. We want preaching not to be a proclamation from a person speaking with authority. We want it to kind of be almost like an audience pastor dialogue. We want dimensions of the passage to be talked about, but then options to look at the passage to be offered, and we want the listener to make the choice about what they think the passage means or how they ought to live it out. We're told to have a mindset of conversing with our audience. We're actually being told at certain points to, to modulate how you use your voice. We're actually being told to take pulpits and podiums off of platforms because that's an, a tool of authority. And that looks like you're speaking into or down to people. And so you have platforms without any podiums, without any pulpits, and you have wandering preachers that kind of lean over the edge of the platform and converse and just, do, do you know, have you seen this? Some of you... I've been criticized, mostly by pastors who know my ministry and have watched me over the years, that I break all of those rules. <laughs> I got criticized in preaching class in seminary. I got graded down by some of my, the other people in the class. They said, you're too intense. <laughs> you're also too direct. Well, I got real hope from this passage because Paul says, him we what? Proclaim. Proclaim is a very powerful word, katangelo in the Greek. It meant to, to preach, <laughs> basically. came from a word that meant a, a messenger coming to a town with an urgent message, and he would go out into the, the square of the town, and he would yell out at the top of his lungs, I have a message. Angelo, to, to announce as a messenger, as a herald, and the Greek has an intensifier in the front of this one, katangelo, really preach. <laughs> That's what it says. So I either obey my critics or I obey what Paul seemed to say here in the inspired scripture, and I'm going to go for that. Because you see, in I'll go back to 1 Corinthians. Go back to that passage, 1 Corinthians 1. He says in verse 21, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Preaching is going to be folly to the non-believing mind unless God is at work. So if you begin to let your preaching be directed by the psychology or the learning style or the, the, the age range of your listener, you become listener directed instead of message empowered. This is a spiritual message. I'm not up here as a motivationalist or a life 
coaching speaker. This is a spiritual message. It always is. So the world's going to have a confused grid, verse 21. Verse 22, Jews are going to demand signs and Greeks seek wisdoms. Different groups and cultures with their spiritual backgrounds or their non-spiritual backgrounds, pagan as they might be, are going to be looking for this and that, all from their own human grid, which is the fallen grid. But we preach Christ crucified. If I'm not mistaken, I think that's basically the same word in Colossians 1.28. We announce with intensity. We preach this because it's not from us as spiritual leaders or Christian thinkers or a platform personality. These are not just my ideas that you can take or leave. I've gone into the depths of the word of God and to the best of my ability, I have come to tell you what I think God says in this passage And so when we preach, we're preaching to you with our greatest conviction about what God says. And so you should have some authority in your preaching, is the point. And with that authority, God will do what he will. Your message, if you preach it, verse 23, Christ crucified, it still may not get a good response. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. People may totally trash and and, and ignore your message. That's okay. You're not preaching for effect. You're preaching for truth. However, look at the next verse. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Interesting. Anybody from any place uh, of, the, of the, the intellectual spectrum in life, their religious background, their cultural background, he, he says anybody who is called, who is under the power of the Holy Spirit and being drawn to Christ, or who is a believer and wants to know more about the Christ that saved them, oh, your message to them, look at this, will be Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is why we preach Christ. He is the only power of God and the only wisdom of God. And the new heart longs for that. People have talked about, okay, you need to communicate to, um, to people of a certain generation with a certain style. And I've been told this recently. Because people of a younger age have a different way they hear ideas And you have to be sensitive to that. I can understand that. People are telling me that people of a certain age, a young age, don't want to be spoken down to or spoken to directly and directed. Well, you know what? I didn't either. I was 19 once too. But then Christ swept into my life I was convicted of my sin. I saw who I really was apart from him. Then I tasted who I am in him, and I tasted new life. I experienced the call of 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, and I'll tell you, my attitude changed in a hurry, and I couldn't wait to get under clear, passionate, expositional Bible teaching that showed me Christ. I didn't care how tough the preacher was. And I... There's so much that you can obviously see through a life of preaching is both fulfilling and frustrating as I look at this text. But you ought to know that as a preacher, or this preacher looks at it, we need to preach Christ. We need not to be afraid to preach Christ. We need not to be hesitant about going into the depths of Christ. 
simply as the Word of God does it. I think I'm going to get through the second purpose. Let's go to that. (laughs) You're thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to be this intense next week too. Here's the second. Not only is a pastor supposed to preach Christ, secondly, he is to warn about error. Go back to Colossians 1 and look at the order of things. We start with the Word of God. We start with with Catangelo preaching. And it's a preaching of Jesus Christ. And how do we preach Christ? Next phrase explains that. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. This verse, this phrase rather, begins to give you an understanding of what biblical preaching must contain. It has to contain some warning. (laughs) Again, you're saying, well, I think that that makes sense, but you'd be amazed. It really, in our generation, has made less sense to people like me. He says, warning everyone. That means it's a preaching context. We don't warn just a person that's involved in sin. We warn the church. We teach from the pulpit. We open the text. We say God has this warning principle for every believer. So there's a dimension in which you have to warn people. Now, this builds on what I said a moment earlier about the fact that preaching needs to have a dimension of authority in it. That's the nature of the word. And when we open God's word, it's not me telling you what I'm saying you've got to do. It's what I'm saying. It it appears for me after diligent study and deep prayer, this is what God is saying to us. And there's a dimension in which there's some warning in here. Paul leads with it. Now, you can't warn by only preaching suggestions. You just can't. That's a little bit like the mother of a middle schooler dropping her her son off at his first party at 8 o'clock at night, pulling up in front of a house she's never been to with parents she's never known, with kids she's never seen, and dropping that middle school boy off, and as he walks up to the the sidewalk, mom rolls down the window and says, make good choices, and drives away. There's a million and one stories about how that parenting philosophy works out. That's not how we're to handle people, because 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, and Romans 3 tells us, that the nature of the human mind is blinded and corrupt, We have a sin nature before Christ that drives everything we do. After Christ, Christians have a new nature, but we still got our flesh, don't we? Some of you? Oh, some of you really don't. No, no, all of us do. (laughs) In other words, we still have a drive to sin in us. We still have a deceived, immature mind. We need instruction and we need warning. We can't make good choices unless God warns us about the nature of bad choices. Now, we do this lovingly in preaching, but strongly. And Paul says, we warn everyone. It was a key part of his ministry, and it's a key missing part of a lot of ministry today because we are so directed and dictated to by the idea of wanting not to offend. Two things under this, and this is as far as we'll go today. He talks here about how pastors are to warn. I give you three things under this. 
The first way a pastor is supposed to warn people from the word of God, either from the pulpit or in person, is what I would call previously. And you think that that word doesn't fit. How do you warn somebody previously? Well, that's the only way a warning works. If you let them go and fall into a bad act or a bad situation or sin, and then they're coming to you afterward all wrecked, you can't warn them. All you can do is try and put them back together. A warning only works as a caution before somebody gets trapped in sin. So pastors are warning previously. Of course they are. The Greek word here, nuthetao, interesting Translated warning here, I think that's a great translation. It came from two Greek words, nous for the mind, and tithemi to place, and it literally meant to place something in somebody's mind. To warn them, to, to, to put a principle into what they know about what God wants before they act. To put a principle into their mind about the consequences of something that God doesn't want them to do to know before they make that decision. It is previous. The Word of God, if the Word of God talks about it, a good pastor, when he comes upon that in the text, will talk about it. He won't skip around to something he feels is more relevant and miss the warning means to place into the mind. The idea is to lay it on the mind or the heart of the person. In fact, the idea also carries with it the idea of drilling down to the will and the emotions to really drive it into them so they truly and deeply understand it. Now, in the parenting life of the past, there was a phrase for that, putting the fear of God into somebody, into one of your kids. People say, oh, that's so oppressive, that's so harsh, that's just not letting them be who they are, that's, that's violating their sense of self, that's not letting them uh, write on the whiteboard of their life the way they want to do, it's violating their developing personhood, and all of that other stuff. Well, okay, but if you don't, it's violating the Word of God. Well, who are you going to choose? The therapist on CNBC or the Apostle Paul? remember my mother, she wasn't a deeply Christian woman, and she had no idea what the Greek word nutheteo meant. But she was very clear as I was growing in those teen years about certain dimensions of life that were bright and shining lines morally. And she put the fear of her (laughs) into me. I wasn't a believer. But even in that Human structure, parenting, and a developing mind. There's a relationship that God designed in the non-believing world as well as the believing world. There's a sense of warning and admonishing, putting something into somebody's mind so they know the principle of rightness and they know the consequences of wrongness and that protected dimensions of my life. I think that's a, a way to illustrate what Paul is talking about here. So he's saying, as a pastor in my preaching ministry, when I see that I need to warn, I warn and I warn all my people, everyone, about what God wants them to do and the consequences that happen when they don't. 
So how pastors are to warn, number one, previously, that's obvious. Number two, continuously, that's less than obvious. The Greek text here says, Paul said, it's in the present active indicative, which means I am warning you constantly. I warn my church constantly. I'm doing it virtually every time I preach and teach. I I build warning into my ministry. So we not only warn previously as pastors, we warn continuously But I have to say that warning and speaking with authority about truth and behavior is kind of a missing in action thing in a lot of preaching today. And again, as a preacher, I can speak to preachers. I mean, in my generation, and certainly in the generation that just followed mine, a lot of us as pastors were taught to preach backwards. You say, I think I've been in one of those guys' churches. (laughs) Just never made sense to me. But anyway... I'm serious about describing it that way. My generation was, uh, was taught in some classes, and I remember some of the books that I read, remember some of the phrases that we were urged to remember in preaching. We were taught to preach backwards. In other words, we were taught to uh, first focus on what we thought people wanted to know more about in life or what their felt needs were as to what they were struggling with because that would be more relevant to them. I remember one book that I read in in preaching when I was a young pastor said this, exegete your people before you exegete your Bible. Exegete means to go into and discover the meaning and lead the meaning out. That's how we develop preaching. I exegete the text by going into the passage, finding out what, as best I can, what God meant when he said it, and then taking it and presenting it to you. That's exegeomai, means to lead something out. And this particular teacher who was very influential, writer, has said, before you open your Bible, exegete your people and find out what their needs are and find out what they want to know more about, about life, and then go to your Bible and find something where the Bible talks about that. And if you can't find something in the Bible that talks about that, make your Bible talk about it. No, I'm serious. There was a little parenthesis there where some pastors fell into that. That's, that's not exegesis, that's rexegesis. I mean, uh, that's preaching backwards. It doesn't have a noble history. It was an idea that was invented by a liberal preacher who later became an apostate. His name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. He got enamored with, with counseling and psychology as that movement grew in the 1800s. And in New York, he saw that not enough people were coming to churches. And so he decided to change how preaching works and figure out how to get more people into churches and into seats. And he came up with a whole idea of felt need preaching. He invented it. Began to sweep through American ministry. It's still present in American ministry today. And it's preaching backwards. I care about what you think, and I care about what you're struggling with, and I care about your life, but I'm not going to start there and find out more about what God says about your current circling struggle. I'm going to go to the Word of God and find out about about what He says, about what He says, about what you really need. And that will almost, that will essentially always rotate in some way back to Jesus Christ, what He's done, and who He is. So I'm preaching forwards, hopefully. Now people say, well, okay, I understand that the Bible says to warn, 
Here's a question for you, preacher. How do you as a Bible teacher know how to balance warning with encouragement? Because the big strain out there is people need encouragement. Positive and encouraging. That's the the, the trail you got to be on as a speaker and a pastor. And some people have a right to say that because some people have been in churches where every Sunday it seems like the pastor is a scold. And there's more things you're not doing right or there's more standards to meet. And it's tipped over that way. But then again, there's a lot of other people that go to different churches and talk to me about the fact that every, every week they, they seem, the pastor's kind of a softy who's continually into the nature of how they feel and, and they're not being spoken to. <laughs> so it's like this. How do you balance it? Well, my answer is you just teach verse by verse through the text. And so you warn when God warns in the text. And you comfort when God comforts in the text. Doesn't that make sense? That's not me coming up with stuff to tell you folks every Sunday. I just go to the next verse, as you've probably noticed by now. I open the scripture. I seek to go verse to verse, paragraph to paragraph, and we'll get through a book eventually. We'll get through there. (laughs) But on the way, you're still getting the thread as God wrote it. And if he comes into a section... Like in Colossians 2, it's going to be filled with warnings because he has to warn. Verse 8 of Colossians 2, he changes his tone from talking about himself to talking about the things that is threatening them. And he warns them, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. That's a warning. And so when I get to that place, I'll teach you warning. But then when he gets to chapter 3 and verse 1, it's comfort because it's, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll also appear with him in glory. That's straight up comfort and excitement. And when we get there, I'll teach you that. So how do you stay balanced as a pastor? Just stay in the text. That's your best hope. Because all of us have a personality bent one way or the other. Be tough, be comforting, what have you. Can't believe I'm getting this transparent, but there it is. So here's the last thing under how pastors are to warn. Very important. Pastors are to warn, to put things into people's minds of warning and consequence, but we are to do it lovingly. So important. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 at the end of his ministry at Ephesus to the gathered elders there as he was leaving. Remember how day after day, for years, publicly and from house to house, I admonished you, I nuthetowed you with tears. No pastor has the perfect character or the authoritative right to speak into your life with warning unless he's covered by the love of God. Because he has the weaknesses you have. He has the difficulties and the failures you have. But if he comes in brokenness and he offers this as a warning with tears, he's under the control of the Spirit of God. So we warn. How do we warn? Previously, before people wrap themselves in error, we warn continuously and we warn lovingly. Here's the last under this, and I'll close with it today. Why pastors are to warn. Now, you might think that pastors are basically warning about not doing this wrong morally or that wrong in your relationship 
about moral action. It's not really what you think in the sense that that's part of it, but that's not all of it. You know one of the biggest things pastors are supposed to warn people about, their people? False teaching. See, that's the whole point of the Colossian letter. Paul was warning them about false teaching because, like I said earlier, if you start with Christ, you're on your way. If you don't start with Christ, I don't care what direction you're on, you're making great progress in the wrong direction. You're going to run into into heartbreak and falsehood and deception. That's why the greatest thing pastors need to warn their people about is false teaching, false understandings of Jesus Christ and of God's word. And that's what Paul was doing in this whole epistle. And that's why he says here, look at verse 28, warning everyone, and look at the the next part of the phrase, with all wisdom. Later he'll tell them that all wisdom and knowledge is wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was warning them about the false teaching that was moving into their church and that was around their lives. And there's false teaching today that doesn't have to move into your church. It just has to get your attention. Throw conversation, a book, an article, an internet feed, whatever. So pastors are to warn. And they were warned about false teaching. I was in the office this week and one of our staff, um, part of her job is to, is to transcribe my preaching messages from the audio. <laughs> it's a difficult and miserable experience, but no. <laughs> I think it must be, but... And she enjoys that ministry. And, and I walked in the office and uh, she had the headphones on and I greeted her and, and she said, wow, this is, a, this is an, a hot one. This is an intense message. And I said, really? She said, yeah. This is the one where you talked about false teachers and you really got into a lot of detail. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I got pretty intense on that one, pretty direct. And she said, we needed it. We always will need it. Don't apologize. I appreciated that. That helped my heart. Because I'm just like anyone else. It's difficult for me to speak intensely or directly or confrontationally. But if I'm a pastor and I know you need to be warned, you can know you'll get it. There are other pastors' purposes that we're going to finish unpackaging next time. I want to thank you for being a people that allows a pastor to preach. I truly do. I want to thank you. I want to thank you. And I've done this multiple times in the years I've been with you. But you don't hear it enough. I've never felt held back in this pulpit. I've never felt constrained. All I've sensed from you is a deeper and deeper hunger to know the depths of the Word of God and the wonders of Christ. And so that is a great gift, and I thank you for it. We love you. My wife and I love you, and I love preaching to you. And together, fill each other's hearts, your hearts and mine, just with a desire to be more like Jesus. That's everything to me and I know it's everything to you.